I don't think I can ever get enough of that song simply because the heartbeat of that song was written in response to Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son, the son who leaves home, squanders away his father's wealth, lives a life completely contrary to the life he should have been living as a son, and comes back home simply to be a servant in his father's house because of what he has done. And when he comes home, his father doesn't even have time for his speech because his arms are open to receive him. God is a relational heavenly father. And I want to begin this sermon tonight by making pretty bold statement, but it's where I feel like God has called us to begin in this moment. I believe in the church right now, not Auburn Community Church, but like Big C Church, worldwide church. I believe that we are knee deep in a reformation of the fatherhood of God. Say that again, just so we can sense what I mean. We are knee deep in a reformation of the fatherhood of God. 500 years ago, there was a reformation in the church where a group of men and women were bold enough to walk away from tradition that wasn't rooted in Scripture and begin a new journey. They called them Protestants, but really they were just biblical. And they returned to the truth of the Scripture by living according to things like grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, God's glory alone, rooted in Scripture alone. I believe what God is doing in our day is restoring his rightful place as a relational heavenly father. And we get to witness it every single Sunday that we gather in a space like this because there are men and women, guys and girls, who walk in here viewing God as a transactional master who barks out commands. And what happens is as they meet God for who he is, they find out he's a loving heavenly father who wants to give me the life I really want the abundant life that he created me for. And I think what's happening, not just at Auburn Community Church, but all over the world, people are coming to discover, God, you're not who I thought you were. You're so much better. I'm seeing you as you are, and I'm responding to that. And how cool is it that in our day, in 2019, we get to be a small part of that. People are waking up to that reality. But a month ago, When we started this series, I said, y'all, I feel like in, and this is just an opinion thing. You don't have to take this as the word of God. It's just my opinion. I believe we are in a day where we are on the edge of unprecedented revival in the Big C Church. Like, we are right there. And the reason why I say that is because the message of Jesus has never been more accessible because of technology, and simultaneously... People's brokenness and emptiness has never been more visible. People are finding out faster than ever before that nothing else works except Jesus. It's not taking a lifetime to figure out, oh, if I live for money, if I live for me, if I live for nothing, there is no sense of worth and fulfillment that gets to me on the inside. And people are finding out early, like 19, 20, 21 years old, there's nothing that this world has to offer me. I must be created for something else. I must be created for someone else. We're right there. The need is felt and the message is available. I said, but there's two things missing. 
One is a lack of personal sorrow for sin, and the other is a lack of a true commitment to the Holy Scriptures. We're right there. But what we're missing is that we use the grace of God as an excuse to do whatever we want all the time. And we'll just wipe our slate clean. Thank you, Jesus, for dying to save me. I'll just keep doing whatever I want and feel better about myself. And in so doing that, we take the Bible and we go, this is, this is a great set of stories, but this is always going to live in submission to my reasoning. Because I'm... Like, we're, we're developed in 2019. We don't, we don't need an ancient book like this. And what, what you realize the more you read the Bible is that this is more developed than your human brain could ever fathom trying to be. This is the Word of God. And so you don't subject the Word of God to your ability to reason. You subject your ability to reason to God's perfect, infallible Word. And the reason why I say those are the two things missing is because personal sorrow over sin and a commitment to the Holy Scriptures both have to do with the fatherhood of God. If God's a good, loving, relational, heavenly father, your response as a child of God looks like a pleasing, obedient life. Not because you have to, but because you get to. Now I want to please my heavenly father because he's called me a child. I don't want to live contrary to what he calls me to. I want to live in his ways and I want to reflect his ways. I don't want to dishonor him or misrepresent him. But I also want to take him at his word that what he commands is for my good and freedom. And simultaneously, if he's a good father, then I want to know what he says and what he expects of me. And I believe when God takes back his rightful place as a relational heavenly father who loves you, but also loves you enough to tell you how you're called to live, oh my gosh, we, we could be like right there on the edge of something as we enter into a new decade. And that's why Wrecked by Grace has been rocking our church over the course of the last month. If you've missed any part of this series, I'd highly encourage you to check it out. But what I've been reminding our church every week is that if you're a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, it would be good for you to know how to define the word gospel. You know, most people attending ACC, I would say, cannot confidently answer the question, what is the gospel? What is the good news about Jesus? And if you did answer it, you'd probably say something like, Jesus died on the cross to forgive me for my sins which is true, but not the whole narrative. Every week I've been trying to remind you that the gospel has four parts to it. It's simply this, the glory of God, the lostness of man, the mercy of our Savior, and the mission of the kingdom. Now the problem with how most of us grew up in church is that people who taught us about Jesus skipped to point number three. And so you never really appreciated point number three because you didn't know the price that was paid for you. Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins. <laughs> Thanks, I'm six. Like, uh, that's awesome that a guy 2,000 years ago did something for me that I didn't ask him to do, that I didn't come up with, and that's, that's really interesting history there, but okay, died to say, cool, I want to go to heaven. Like, if, if heaven and hell is real, I'd I take heaven, then awesome. But what you end up with is accepting a gospel that never really takes into account the price that was paid for you. You understand that the gospel doesn't begin with the cross. The gospel begins with glory. God created the world and created your life as a reflection of the perfection of his nature. 
The only meaning you have behind your existence is to point to the value of your creator. Same thing is true about creation, but only we had the breath of life breathed into us. We're eternal beings. That's why hell exists. See, hell wasn't an idea that God had where he's like, I'd like to punish people forever. Hell was the only natural result of combining the glory, the perfection of God with the lostness of man. Look at the combination of one and two right now. If you combine the sinfulness of humanity to go their own way, to do their own thing, to be separate from the holiness and perfection of God, the only natural result of that is wrath and punishment. So God has no choice but to cast humanity away from his presence forever because he's that perfect, he's that amazing, he's that awe-inspiring. But Jesus, this is what is so amazing about grace. You will never be wrecked by grace if you don't consider what you've been saved from. And you'll never know what you've been saved for until you truly appreciate what you've been saved from. Guys, if we, if we don't talk about hell, if we don't talk about how ugly your sin is in the sight of God, if we don't actually consider that without Jesus, we are hopeless and worthless, we'll never feel the worth of the price he paid by shedding his blood. And so when you see the mercy, you're like, so God's response to my rebellion against him is to send his perfect son in my place to bridge the gap between me and him. Yes. That should also tell you that God does not have a lot in common with your ways of thinking because you would not do that. So we're trying to get God into my little box. Try this one on for size. Imperfect, rebellious sinners. His response, my perfect, spotless, only son in their place. He's not like you, and that's a good thing. And so when you understand that, you get wrecked by grace. What what, what does wrecked by grace mean? I've had so many people ask me that. It means I'm not just calling myself a Christian. My whole life has changed because my story has collided with the grace of God. See, it's one thing for you to call yourself a Christian and go, I, I, I believe in Jesus. It's a whole other thing to say, I got wrecked by grace. When you say, I got wrecked by grace, what you're saying is, my life got ruined for living any other way other than for the glory of God because I understand what Jesus did to save me. And on top of that, this series has just built and built and built. Grace gets better because God doesn't just send Jesus to die, raise him from the dead, and then save you forever in heaven. God also has a grace called empowering grace. And God gives you a new heart with new desires from within so that you do have the ability to live the life Jesus died for you to live. This is amazing. See, so many of you have responded to grace by trying to change your actions. But Jesus can't change your actions until he changes your desires. So you've spent your whole life trying to change your behavior, and you're increasingly more frustrated because you're like, I keep doing what I used to do, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to just get right. And, I'm, and 2020 is going to be my year. And I'm going to, no, it's not. You're going to keep sinning. You are that sinful. Until Jesus gives you a new heart from within that beats with new desires for, I would say, better desires because Jesus is better by far, you have no chance of obeying God out of sheer willpower. It's got to be the will from within that comes from the Spirit of God. And so we've considered how God gives us new desires, but then he's not done. He goes to another level of grace, and he goes, okay, so I rescued you from sin and death and hell, and now I put a new heart in you, my Holy Spirit on the inside of you, to empower you to live the life that you can't live on your own. And now I'm going to give you a new mission for your life. The mission of the kingdom of God is to carry the glory of God to all nations. 
God never, ever, ever veered from his plan A, the glory of God all over the world. You and I are now plan A, carrying that mission. And so wherever you go, the kingdom of God goes because Jesus is the king of your heart. Thank you, Tyler Miller, who preached a word last week, and you need to check it out on the podcast if you didn't get to hear it. And so we're at the end of this series, this last moment. It's been intense. It's been heavy on our minds, and I think it's just It's caused us to consider whether or not we've been wrecked by grace. And I felt like God just had one more thing he wanted me to install into this series from the word of God. And it's this. Is there another level of grace after all three of those things that can save me from my own tendency to know all of that and still walk away from God and break his heart again? I want to talk about what it means to live wrecked by grace, not to be wrecked by grace in a moment a long time ago. And as a Christian, I'll just tell you this, we have a tendency of making a big deal out of defining moments. We're doing that right now. As you walked in, did you see the wall on the way in, all those stories? I was wrecked by grace when? If you read them, you're going to read stories. Some of them are so cool because they have dates on them. Some of them have dates from Sundays in this series, which is crazy. Think about that moment. If you're a Christian in this room, when were you wrecked by the grace of God? What was that like? Now, what so many of us don't understand is that being wrecked by grace is not something we trace back to an original moment as much as it is something that we need once again today to continue to live the life Jesus died for us to live. Because what do you do when you got wrecked by grace in a moment and you claimed in front of a group of people or you claimed in your own time with the Lord, I'm changed forever, and then you went back to your old ways all over again and you continued to stack up sin upon sin upon sin and pattern on top of pattern on top of pattern that was dishonoring to God. But this wasn't pre-Jesus. This was post-Jesus in your life. And you hear stories of people around you who got wrecked by grace and they were changed forever. And their pornography addiction went away and their alcohol addiction went away and their tendency to gossip went away and their thing just evaporated. You ever talk to a Christian like that? I don't like them because I'm jealous. <laughs> I'm serious. I, I talk to people, I, I was changed. One Sunday, I walked down to the altar, called on the name of Jesus. I never, I never wanted that area of sin again. God just delivered me from it. I'm like, that's great. I look at God. I'm like, what the heck, man? Like, I, what, I mean, I feel like we had a thing. Like, why didn't all of my old desires go away like you did for that guy, like you did for him, like you did for her? And here's the thing. In rare, rare moments, miraculous power of God can change someone from within. But never Never does God in a single moment take a sinful life and sanctify them entirely in one moment. It happens over the course of time. So what you and I have to learn how to do is not trace back the moment we got wrecked by grace to a season in our past. What we have to learn how to do is let the grace of God wreck us again and again and again and find us in our rebellion and find us in our sin and locate us when we think we've sinned against God for the final time and he's given us the last chance and it's all over and we've got to learn to let that grace continue to wash over us. And I want to ask this question. Is there a grace that goes beyond God's willingness to save us from hell, God's willingness to give us a new heart and a new purpose and mission for our lives? And I'm not going to answer that question. James is. If you have your Bible, hold it up all over this room. Hold it up. Hold it up. James is the half-brother of Jesus. And the fact that James believes that Jesus is the Son of God, I believe is the greatest evidence that Jesus is actually the Son of God. 
Because if you can convince your own brother, you can convince anybody. And you know, James didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God while Jesus was alive on earth. He believed post-resurrection. And he became one of the main leaders in the early church. Now, James, if you're looking for it in your Bible, it's at the end, but that's deceiving. James is actually arguably the first book of the New Testament chronologically. But your Bible is not organized chronologically. It doesn't go in order from this year to this year to this year. It's organized by genre. That's why the books tend to be all over the place. Like when you're reading the Old Testament, it starts with all narrative books. And then it gets into poetic books. And then it gets into prophetic books. They're not in order based on a timeline. They're organized based on the type of writing they are. Same thing with the New Testament. The New Testament is loaded with letters to the early church after the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But that doesn't mean that they're in chronological order. So James literally, we could call the beginning of the New Testament. And what's happened is the church in Jerusalem has been scattered all over the world because of a massive persecution that happened. It's amazing because God uses this terrible thing like the killing of Christians to spread the message of Jesus all over the world. How many of you know that no matter what the devil tries to do to stop the message of Jesus, his very effort to stop it becomes the fuel that spreads it. That's what happened in the first century. And so people are spreading out, and these are people who have been wrecked by the grace of God. These are not Bible Belt cultural Christians who go to church sometimes. These are people who are in. Miles, how do you know that? Because they're going to die for it. Why would you be a Christian if nobody else is and you could die for it? They're in. And so James's letter is to go, here's how you live practically the Christian life And James is the most in-your-face book of the entire Bible. Two years ago, I preached verse by verse through the letter of James. And I just felt called in that moment to study deeply one particular book of the Bible. And I only highlight that to say sometimes God calls us as a church to live in one book of the Bible and just lock in on it. But sometimes, like in this season, wrecked by grace, we've been in Isaiah. We've been in Romans. We've been in James. We've been all over the place jumping around, and that's okay, too. A lot of the conversation that I hear around Auburn, especially around young people, is this intensely divisive culture of debate about how church is intended to be done. Guys, look at me. We're not jumping in on that. Jesus is too busy loving people to argue with other Christians. We're not doing it. So when people tell you, and I know your friends tell you this, well, I don't don't know about ACC because Miles, I don't know if he's an expository preacher. That's how they talk. Uh, I don't really know. He doesn't go verse by verse. I don't have to. You know that, right? You know, like, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so... I believe when you preach, you need to preach the word. That was Paul's mandate to Timothy. But he didn't say in order, verse by verse. If he did, I'd do it because I'm submitted to my heavenly father. But where God has given freedom, live in that freedom. And where your friends insist on being divisive, be the person who's more concerned about loving the person that nobody else sees. Because I'm tired of the coffee house debates. I'm tired of the, I don't know about this. Let's just love people. Can we do that? I believe ACC could be a big part of that change. Love that you guys are at this service. I needed you at the 11. Um, we got to get to James. Okay. So it's real. James is brutally honest. And I believe James chapter 4 is the climax of all of these instructions that James has given the early church. James chapter 4, verse 1. If you're there, say I'm there. Here we go. 
He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. The early church is struggling with divisive relationships. 2,000 years later, not much has changed. But James says, your problem in your fighting with each other is not that you have bad relational tactics. It's that you have desires within you that are conflicting with your soul. And we talked about how God gives you a new heart to combat those desires. But I want you to know this. James is at the tail end of a long list of post-Christian struggles. That if you're here today and you call yourself a Christian, you say, I got wrecked by the grace of God. I would say there is something written in the book of James that lines up with something you're struggling with tonight that's rooted in an evil desire. James is trying to land the plane from all of these issues. So he talks about fights with other believers, but elsewhere in this letter, he talks about our tendency to want to give up when we're under trials. If you're going through a tough time and you just want to tap out, you just want to totally give up. If you're struggling with depression and you've literally thought about ending your own life, James speaks to that. They also would fall easily into temptation they also had a faith that was more rooted in what they said they believed about God and not what they actually did every day. They also had a tendency of favoring rich people or people of higher status as opposed to those who they couldn't gain something from being friends with. They also had a tendency to be jealous of each other and live rooted in selfish ambition to try to one-up the people around them so they would be seen as more valuable. They also had a tendency of having, having out-of-control mouths. And James spends an entire chapter talking about taming the tongue and basically saying, you can't do it. You need God's help. As I read through this letter, I'm like, us? Us? Oh, th this was their other struggle. They didn't pray, even though they were Christians. Anybody relate to that? Oh, when they did pray, they prayed with wrong motives. Or they prayed without faith, not actually believing that God was going to do what they were asking him to do. See, every single one of these issues, you're like, that's me. That's us. That's, I know the grace of God, but I keep living that way. And James spends four chapters going, not okay, not okay, not okay, not okay. And this is the climactic conclusion, and it's going to hurt. Are you ready? Look at verse four. You adulterous people. If you have ESV, there's an exclamation point right there. The NIV is a little nicer. Gives you a nice comma there. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Ouch. James's conclusion is if you know the grace of God... And you're living in these ways that are contrary to the ways of God you are called to. He uses the word adulterous. Now, if you have your Bible in front of you, I want you to look at that phrase, adulterous people. Do you see the footnote that's right there? You see the footnote? Always read the footnotes. At the bottom, it'll tell you that that word in Greek is not a sexual word. It's actually a word about covenant unfaithfulness rooted in the Old Testament people of Israel. 
James is going, you guys are like Israel in the Old Testament. If you've never read the Old Testament, let me summarize it for you. God blesses Israel. Israel disobeys God. God says, you're my people. They say, we're going to live like everybody else. God says, take this land. They say, we're afraid. We'll just walk around for 40 years. God says, live this way, and they continually do their own thing. And James says, you are just like Israel. You Christians, first century Christians who have been wrecked by the grace of God. You're so unfaithful to God. You know know what you've done? You've created a friendship with the world that you said you left behind, and you've become an enemy of God. Friends with the world with enmity toward God. What does enmity mean? It means hatred. There's no way to have a friendship with the ways of this world without also making yourself in that moment a direct enemy against the God of the universe. He says, do you not know that scripture says that he jealously longs for the spirit he caused to dwell in you? When we talk about the jealousy of God, don't think insecure high school boyfriend. Oh, I'm just so jealous. Don't do that. Don't go there. Don't, no, 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 no. Think God of the universe who made you for something better and wants that something better for you. And he's crying out from within you going, this is not okay that you're settling. And just when you're reading this and you're like, okay, that's, that's where it runs out, right? God gave us grace to save us from sin and death and hell. God gave us grace to give us a new heart and new desires from within. And he gave us grace to give us a new mission for our lives. But this is it. We have become, all of us who know Jesus, adulterous people who become friends again with the world and remake ourselves enemies of God. This is where the narrative ends for you and for me. And this is where you need to tune in so closely. And hear what I believe to be the most underrated short section of scripture in the entire Bible. James chapter 4, verse 6. Get your tissues out. But he gives us more grace. But he gives us more grace. Wait. Are you serious? He already gave us grace that we didn't deserve, saving us from an eternity separated from him. And then he gave us more grace to be able to live the life we can't live on our own. And then he gave us more grace to give us a new purpose and a new mission. But now you're telling me that even when I know all of that and I intentionally walk away from God's heart for my life and story and I choose, I knew better, I heard the sermon, I read the word, I heard the song and I did my own thing. I knew better and I walked away from God. You're telling me if I'm a child of God, he gives more grace. I'm not telling you that, James is telling you that. That's how good the grace of God is. And if you're here today and you have spent your entire life running from the God of the universe, he gives us more grace. Christian in the room, if you have spent all of 2019 totally running from God, and maybe in the back of your mind you're going, I hope 2020 is different. I got good news. You don't have to wait for January 1st. It's December 1st. You can get your new beginning right here and right now because he gives us more grace. God's so crazy. Some of you are like, you are. Listen, God's method, God's method of correction for his own children 
is the continual increasing of his favor over their life. How does your heavenly father choose to correct you when you have changed your way of relating to him? His method is increase the favor, increase the grace. Because as a child of God, God's disposition toward you is always unchangeable. For the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. And so, good news. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. This is true for you if you're a child of God. If you're here and you're going, oh my gosh, the more I sin, the more God forgives. He just compounds favor on top of my life. The more I sin, I'm just going to keep sinning. Bad news. These promises are not yours because you're not a child of God. What the favor of God causes on the inside of you is a lifestyle that's ruined for anything else. And so it is his kindness that is his method for bringing you back into your rightful place, into the family that you never lost in the first place. You were just acting like you lost it, and he's reminding you who you really are. How does he do it? Holy Spirit in you. What did James say? In James chapter 4, verse 5, do you not know that Scripture says that he jealously longs for those from a spirit that is within them, here's, here's how grace wrecks you. Grace wrecks you because once you're a child of God, you can no longer persist in enjoying sin. You hate it. You choose it. And then you go, no, I hate this. And some of you have tried to sh like shut up the voice of God on the inside of you, and he won't shut up. You're like, don't stop making me feel this way when I just want to do what I want to do. And he's going, I can't revoke your sonship. I can't not call you a daughter. And so I'll bother you from within for the rest of your life, reminding you who you really are. I've had people ask me, how do I know I'm a Christian? How, how, do, I, how do I know I have security in the family of God? Simple answer is from Romans chapter 8, verse 16, where we read that the Spirit of God testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Another super short, underrated verse. What does that mean? To testify is to preach. If you have a voice on the inside of you who doesn't leave you alone when you persist in sin, so much so that you know you could not possibly live the rest of your life disobeying God and be okay with it, congratulations, you're a Christian. You're going to heaven. And God will make you miserable for the rest of your life the more you try to persist in sin. That's him pursuing you. Listen, the way we relate to each other is when one of us does something that's unfavorable to another, we withdraw. When we do something that's unfavorable to God, God ups the favor. He, this is insane. He ups the grace. And he goes, nope, nope, nope. You hear my voice from within, I'm calling you back. And it is in his kindness that we truly find repentance. And when you experience favor like that, that doesn't make you do whatever you want. Some of you are worried right now. You're like, are you serious? The, the more I sin, the more his disposition toward me becomes favor. But that favor is not intended to give you a license to just go sin free. That favor tells you how much your sin costs God and draws you back where you belong in the family. So watch this. If favor causes humility, what do you need to do knowing this about your God when you live in a way that's far from him? 
you need to let grace wreck you again and drive you to your knees. Whenever you read something good in the Bible, what do I always tell you guys? Keep reading. So let's do that. James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. If you have ESV, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that's a verse from Proverbs. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is the epic resolution of James. When you know that God gives you more grace, what does that mean? That means you need to humble yourself and fall before God in sorrow over where you've gone and where you've been. God opposes the proud but shows favor but gives grace to the humble. And so what I want you to do is submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I'm going to get into the meaning of all those verses. But listen, everybody look up here. Don't miss this. I know this one's been intense. What these verses have shown me over time is that you and I need to redefine how we view spiritual maturity. There's many of us in the room who have believed you're a mature Christian when you stop falling. I need to learn how to just stay upright longer, and then I'll be mature in my faith. What I've found is that a mature Christian is not someone who stays on their feet the longest. It's the one who falls before God the fastest when they know they've been knocked down. You will never be more spiritually mature in your life than when you stay sensitive to your sin and you stay sorry about it and you stay bowed before the God of the universe going, I need that favor again. I need that grace again. Would you wreck me again and remind me that I'm still in your family? So what I want us to learn how to do as a church, oh my gosh, do not miss this. I want you to learn to recognize when you've been acting like a friend of the world and run back to your father sooner and fall. Humble yourselves before the Lord that he may lift you up. This is one of the most intense sermons I've ever brought to us, and I feel like we need to take a breath. Could you look at the person next to you and say, I'm so glad I got to sit next to you for this intensity. I'm just so glad I got to experience this with you. So glad. All right. I read a commentary this week that said this section of James could be called How to Get Up when you know you're knocked down. And so I want to show you how to do that. What do you do when you know you were wrecked by grace in a previous season and you haven't been living like it in this season? Here's what you do. Number one, draw near by drawing away. Draw near by drawing away. The interesting thing about this passage is it calls us to come near to God, but it tells us to do that by resisting the devil. That's because when you and I try to draw close to God, we skip the most important step in doing that practically, which is taking a step away from what was holding you back in the first place. So you can't draw near to God without drawing away from something or someone or that habit that's just been holding you back for so long. So my tendency is I get alone with God. I'm like, God, I just want to feel you. I just want to sense you. And I feel this distance. The distance is God's going, hey, we need to talk about that. We need to talk about him. 
And you're thinking he's cruel because he's touching the area of your life that hurts the most. He's not cruel. He's a good father. And he addresses the wound. So here's what James said. Read this again. But he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. The definition of repentance in the New Testament is to be going in one direction, feel an internal level of sorrow, and in that sorrow, step away from where you were going and step back toward where Jesus is. Here's the thing. You can't take a step toward Jesus if at the same time you're not taking a step away from what's holding you back from Jesus. These are not steps. James is not saying, okay, resist the devil and now come near to God. It's one step. It's a step of no yes. But you can't say yes to Jesus if you're just going to keep your sinful secret in your back pocket the whole time and go, hey, when this appetite rises again, you know I'm coming back to you. It's like your side hustle. You're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold this over here, but I've got Jesus. I love you. I want to draw near to you. And it's like, no, 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 no. That, that's actually not true repentance. What true repentance is, here it is. Here it is. Out of my pocket. I'm done with the hiding. Here you go, Jesus. I'm drawing away from this. It says resist the devil. That's the only place in the Bible it says that. Some of y'all are like, isn't the devil like more powerful than us? Like, can we even really resist him? Like, yes, he's more powerful than you. But he's not more powerful than the blood that bought you. And so here's the thing. The only children of God who the devil has access to are children who do not resist him. So when a child of God goes, here, do what you do. Yes. Darkness is coming. But when a child of God goes, oh, yeah, I'm bought. You have no right here. It doesn't matter how powerful he is. Nothing will ever break the binding power of the blood of Jesus. And so one step, this is what we don't want to do. And this is the hard part. Let's be honest with you. The hard part is the resistance. The hard part is going, it can't be that, and it has to be him. What we do is we do half of that. We go, I want him, but I want to hold on to that. It's one or the other. So next time you draw near to God, you have to do it by drawing away from the thing that's polluting your heart. I'm really into like reading commentaries about the scriptures, and I read this line this week. It spoke to me so powerfully. It's not going to make any sense to most of you. It's going to be so over your head. But to a few of you who are like Bible nerds, you're going to be like, yes, give me some of that. Here's what I read. Attacking that which pollutes the heart will remove that which divides the mind. Attacking that which pollutes the heart will remove that which divides the mind. What's these people's problem? Same as your problem, a divided mind, double-mindedness. But we try to fix our divided mind by going, okay, i got to fix my thoughts. i got to fix my thoughts on Jesus. No, no, no. Attack whatever's polluting your heart, and your mind will be renewed in the process. So here's my question tonight. What do you need to draw away from so you can draw near to God? I don't know what your poison is. I don't know what that secret is. I don't know what that relationship is. I would say it's this. It's whatever you're doing this to in front of God, and God's going, here. Would you just, some of you it's money. Some of you it's a relationship. Some of you it's science. And you're going, I need this reconciled. And God's going, I'm relational. Would you just, but until you draw away from that, you don't get the fullness of him. Somebody say, draw near. Here's the last one. Draw near by drawing away. And number two, get up by bowing down. 
get up by bowing down. I promise they're not leaving. I think they're going to serve communion. <laughs> you guys are like, oh, they're offended. No, they're just committed. Get up by bowing down. This is counterintuitive. But a theme of the Bible is that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So common mistake we made when we're stuck in sin. And I know I'm going long. I always go long at the seven. But y'all stay with me. Stay with me. Stay with me. You do not want to miss this. Common mistake that we make when we try to get up from a level of sin that's holding us away from God is that we try to get up. We hear a word about grace and we go, oh, I've been forgiven. I just need to get up. I just need to start living different. Yeah, I got I to gotta, I gotta fix this. I got to get up. No, no, no. James says, you don't get up. You get down. You just change what you're bowing down to. From bowing down, being stuck in the mess of your sin, to bowing down, humble before God. And then what happens? God lifts you up. It's not your job to get up when you fall. It's God's job to lift you up after you've fallen before him. This is powerful. What does James say? Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will what? Lift you up. So you're down, and you know that you're down. Okay, don't try to dust yourself off and fix it. Some of you live this way. You're like, if I just get a week straight of having my quiet time every day, it'll be all right. If I just have a couple of days that I put together in submission to God, I'll be good. No, no, no. Stay down. Just don't bow down to that. Switch it and bow down to him. And this whole sermon's been one big circle all the way back around to the prodigal son where we started talking about the fatherhood of God. Because the prodigal son who was so hungry that he wanted pig food found himself in a really humble place, bowed over a pig trough going, I want that food. And oh, why? I could go back home and I could be a servant in my dad's house. They have food left over. I've seen it. I'll go back and I'll, that's what I'll do. Same posture. He goes from bowing in front of pig food to what? Bowing before his father. Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. It's okay if you don't let me back in the house. It's okay if you don't look at me. It's okay. I'm just wanting to know if maybe I could stay out there and serve with the rest of your servants. You can feel him like I don't even want to look at him. And what does the father do? Lifts him up. Exalts him. Says, I don't have time for this speech, son put a ring on his finger, put new garments on him, slaughter the fattened calf. We're having a party because my son has come home. You humble yourself before God and he lifts you up. James uses strong language. He says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Stop laughing. You know, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if we actually sat in the misery of our sin for like two minutes. Not to feel shame, but we've, got, we've gotten so quick with the grace card that we're like, hold on. Let me just feel the weight of this for a second and bow before God and say, God, I don't like this about me. And what happens is when you put your heart in that position of humility, you've also put your heart in a position where God can go, hey, let me lift you up. Oh, this is number three and it doesn't get any easier. Recently, I had a moment just like this. 
where I was telling God, I was trying to pray and I was hiding what I really wanted to say. I was keeping that back pocket thing. And I said something out loud to God that as soon as I said it, I felt like something might happen in my relationship with God that would be irreversible. I was afraid to pray it, but it was what was on my heart. And without going into too much detail, essentially what I said to God is, God, I don't think I can keep doing this, preaching the Bible and stay in love with you at the same time. I don't know if I am still as in love with you as I was before I started doing this. And as those words came out of my mouth of like, is this okay to say to God that this is where I am? I felt the most fatherly, relaxed, reclined response from our God. And it, it was as clear as day. It was a verse from 1 John. I felt God say, that's why you gotta know the scriptures because God can't speak to you if you don't know the Bible. He can. But if you have this right in front of you, this is the primary method he speaks through. 1 John, we love him because he first loved us. I felt God going, hey, I never called you to conjure up your love for me every week. I just called you to kind of respond to how crazy about you I am. And I'm like sitting in that moment and I'm just like, so like all the pressure's off? Yes, son, it's okay. You're not breaking my heart by telling me you're falling out of love with me. You're breaking my heart because it took you so long to say it out loud. I love you. I'm for you. All you got to do is receive that. And the love for me will flow from it. Your love, failing. My love, enduring. And I got to tell you, I've, I've never loved standing in front of a group of people more and telling them how much God loves them. So what is it for you tonight that you've been holding back from saying to God? We want to give you the space to do it. We're going to kind of turn this room into whatever you guys want it to be. This stage can be an altar if over the next couple of minutes you want to come bow before God literally and go, I got to turn this over to you. We're going to sing a song that we've never sang in our church, but it's oh, so good. It's called Run to the Father. If you haven't heard it, oh man, it's so good. But you know what we're going to do more than that? We're going to take communion. Communion is the tangible reminder, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. Here's how we do that at ACC. Our serve team's gonna come. In fact, they can come right now and get into position and they're gonna pass plates that basically have sections of cups that are double stacked. So the top cup has some juice in it and then the bottom one has a little piece of bread. You just grab two and you're gonna do this on your own time. Now, I would encourage you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer in Jesus, if you would just pass that to the person next to you, no shame at all. You do not have to believe to belong here. But the Lord's table is for those who have already made the confession. Jesus is Lord and Savior of my life. You can just pass that along. But for the rest of you, I want you to consider the price paid for your sin. And I want you to grieve. I want you to come back to God by humbling yourself before God. Whatever that looks like over the next couple of minutes. So let's create this space. I'm going to pray for you. And then they're going to pass these around. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. In the name of Jesus, I pray that you would be breaking chains that many in this room never thought they would be set free from. 
God, would you do what only your Holy Spirit can do as we remember the night before Jesus died when he said, this is my body broken for you. He held up the cup and said, this is my blood shed for you. We do this to remember you. God, I pray in this physical act that we would somehow connect to the spiritual reality. Wreck us once again with your grace. We love you and we give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all go ahead and pass those around. We'll just step into this moment.